Hi, everyone. I'm Sherry Carney, and this is Roar with Sherry, all things justice for women and survivors. I've spent over 30 years surviving child sexual abuse, rape, incest, campus sexual assault. And if there's one thing I've learned, it's this. Our greatest gift can be found in our greatest trauma. Our trauma, our pain, cuts through to our inner core and reveals the magic within. And that once survivors find their voice, begin their healing journey, and come out the other side, there is no stopping us. That from trauma comes resilience and healing. You are fearless, brave, strong, courageous, magnificent, and I love you. I want this to be a podcast that's real, unpolished, gritty, honest, and reflects both the pain and purpose that comes from being a survivor. We will always ask, what happened to you? What have you experienced? What have you lived through? What have you survived? What is your story? And what must be done to bring you healing, closure, and yes, justice? The purpose of this podcast is raw emotion, our stories, inspiration, perspiration, and ultimately power through justice for survivors. Each episode will include conversations with guests who inspire me, offer insight into the law, help survivors find justice, victim stories, and life-changing transformations. People who are teaching me, challenging me, and inspiring me to move forward. I'll also have direct conversations with you about what I'm learning from survivors and experts that may help you break silence, speak out, find your purpose, seek and receive justice. So we'll do some episodes dedicated to answering your questions. You are not alone. This is your safe home for open, honest, provocative conversations about the dark secrets. 81% of us have experienced, but don't talk about. You do not have to walk this path of life by yourself. You are not alone. We are here and we will roar as one. All things justice for women and survivors with you. I'm Sherry Carney. Welcome. Hi, everyone. I'm Sherry Carney, and this is Roar with Sherry, all things justice for women and survivors. In this episode, I'm talking to Abby Fitzgerald Schwab, one of the two women featured in Netflix's docuseries who uncovered decades long, dark and terrifying secrets about the Catholic all girls high school, Archbishop Keogh. The Keepers shares With Abby, how her amateur sleuthing uncovers unspeakable horror. A breathtakingly brave true crime documentary tells the story of Sister Kathy Sesnick, a 26-year-old nun living in Baltimore who was abducted and murdered back in the 1960s. The case was never solved, but it was linked to horrific mysteries filled with pain and secrets that lingers nearly five decades after her death. The Keepers and our guest who was featured in The Keepers is a story about victims and their search for justice. It's about giving them a chance to be heard over the loud denials of any and every official body, the police, the Catholic Church, the archdiocese, medical professionals, and the predators they enabled and protect it. 
Welcome and thank you for listening. And it's my pleasure to introduce you to Abby Fitzgerald Schwab, one of the amateur investigators who blew the lid off murder and the dark secrets hidden by the Catholic Church. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Okay, let me jump right into this. So we're going to go through a couple of things, Abby. We're going to go through uh, the murder, the keepers, what's going on now. And then we're going to go through what you're doing now in Maryland to help survivors. So first of all, the question is, who killed Kathy Sesnick? Netflix's award-winning docuseries tackled the unsolved murder of Sister Kathy Sesnick, a beloved nun and Catholic high school teacher in Baltimore, Maryland. After disappearing on November 7th, 1969, Sister Kathy's body was found two months later. But again, to this day, the killer remains unnamed. The case returned to the spotlight after one of Sister Kathy's former students accused the high school chaplain of sexual abuse and claims that she was taken to Sister Kathy's then undiscovered corpse and threatened. This riveting story is told through conversations with friends, relatives, journalists, government officials and Baltimore citizens, all hoping to uncover the truth. Abby comes into this picture because in 2014, a high school classmate of Abby and Gemma's began asking questions about the 1969 unsolved murder of their high school English teacher. Abby had always wondered what happened and who would want to harm her. So, Abby, tell me a little bit about how this story starts. Um, Tell me what got you involved in this. It seems like this has always had a life of its own. Around, it was either the end of 2013 or getting into 2014 that a classmate of mine, Gemma Hoskins, posted a couple questions on a Facebook site that was the one of the alumni sites for Kiel. Mm. And she brought up that unsolved mystery of what happened to Kathy. Um, The administrators of the site took the questions down and said that was an inappropriate topic for the site and that it wouldn't be allowed there. Uh, I mean, we, we were 65. It's a little old to tell us if it's inappropriate. What to do, right? <laughs> and that you're um, posting inappropriate things. <laughs> we're we're a, little, a little old for that. But <laughs> Well, you're never that. too old, but you know what I'm saying. It's like, really? Try. I've been um, a coronary care nurse and you're going to tell me what to do. <laughs> The, some of our other classmates, um, unknown to me at the time, started a private Facebook page that mm-hmm. we called AKHS Survivor Site. Um, and decision was made that only people who attended the schools or graduated from the schools could join the site because we wanted to be able to talk frankly. Anyone joining the site was uh, had to agree that they would not talk about posts that people put up. They can talk about links to news stories or things, Mm -hmm. but they can't share posts where people are talking about harm that was done to them or personal events in their life. That that stays there. We started posting, talking about uh, Sister Kathy, but over weeks to months, one after another, people would privately contact us and Half of them would start with what what became to me a a dreaded phrase. I I never told this to anybody before. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And they would go on to talk about sexual abuse that happened either at, at the religious instruct, the uh, head of religious education, Father Neil Magnus, or Father A. Joseph Maskell, who was chaplain at the school. I, I guess I've always approached this differently. I think from all the critical care nursing work, you, you can't look at somebody and say, I know what's wrong and jump in that conclusion. You have to gather lab and diagnostic results and know what you're dealing with before you go forward. Um, so rather than a purely emotional response, mine always has been, how do you verify this? How do you know what really happened? Early on for me, it was hearing from multiple people who did not know each other and did not know whether people had talked to us who were telling the same story over and over again. And so um, they were telling you the story that when they attended key archdiocese, Archbishop Keogh High yes. School. Yes. Tell me what they were telling you, because I'm not sure that people who haven't seen the seven part docuseries, The Keepers, that is airing on Netflix. We do recommend okay. you see it. Understand what you're saying. What were they telling you? I, I never share any specific person's story. Uh, one of our policies is that survivors own their own life stories and they get I to choose who totally they share. Agree. But in, in general, yes. um, Father Joseph Maskell, Archbishop Keogh opened in 1965. I have to go back in my mind here because I graduated in 70, it was four years, we were the second class. Um, an all girls high school, brand new high school. It differed from some high schools in that it was was what's called an archdiocesan school where the archdiocese of Baltimore owns and runs it. Mm -hmm. The SSND order of none, the school sisters of Notre Dame were the teachers and the administrators, but they did not own or set policy or run the school. The archdiocese of Baltimore did. In 1967, Father Joseph A. Maskell was moved from St. Clement's Parish, which is close to Keogh, and started in it at, uh, as chaplain at Archbishop Keogh. No, wait a second. Do you know why he was moved? Because as an attorney that deals with child sexual abuse cases with the Catholic Church, what we found over the years is that the church, when they have allegations of sexual abuse and also cases, instead of doing something about it, simply moves the priest offender or the offender somewhere else where there are children. And it's one of the things that really gets at me is that they just keep moving these perpetrators and predators around, but they don't do anything. So was he moved because they wanted to just transfer him? Why was he moved? Do we know? When we when we started this, we didn't have any idea. Okay. Um, but as the, the months and years went on, it turned out that Father Maskell, the earliest abuse we know was when he mm. was still in the seminary. Right. And he and Father William Sims, a friend of his in the seminary, volunteered at a boys' summer camp called St. Martin's that was run by the Catholic Church. And they played strip poker with the boys with new, you know, new card decks. Mm -hmm. And they took them into the showers to show them how to wash themselves, which did not end well for these young adolescents, 11, 12-ish age boys. Um, We've heard anecdotal episodes of other problems. That would have been in the early 1960s, maybe 63. He was still ordained. Uh, he was at one parish for a year. Then he was moved to St. Clement's, which was close to Keogh. And at St. Clement's, he abused both boys and girls. But he, his, his, it's an odd psychology. His victim of choice 
were adolescent boys. Um, and he had targeted one young man who, after Maskell, after being threatened, he ended up going to his mother, who went who went to the Archdiocese of Baltimore and told them, as as Charles, the young victim, said, they had a sickie on their hands. Mm. And Charles says that Maskell was moved to Archbishop Keogh High School to the all-girls school when he liked boys in, 19, in May of 1967. And the victim, Charles, was then told he was back in Boy Scouts. Everything was fine. And Maskell disappeared from his life. And the chills are starting on my arms because the Catholic Church is thinking, I'm just in my opinion, well, this guy's, this priest is a pedophile that's into boys. Let's move him to high school girls where sexual abuse is about attraction. He's only attracted to young boys. They don't understand that it is a uh, power play. It's an addiction. It's about control. It's about uh, self-satisfaction. And it doesn't have that much to do with the victim in terms of they have a preference, Abby, but they don't say, well, here's a 14 year old girl. I'm not going to do anything that I'm lusting to do and am compulsive about doing because it's not a 13 year old boy. People do not understand that. And in court, we hear all the time. Well, this was if it was a. he sexually assaulted a girl, so he couldn't have been a pedophile because they tend to like prepubescent boys. It's a terrible defense. It's a, so keep yeah. going. A terrible defense. You know, I didn't have sex with her, but I'm going to admit to having sex with this child. I mean, really? And so the church knows. So what we're getting at here, which starts to just get my blood boiling, is that we've got an institution that has been told and knows. So they transfer him to the girls' high school. Keep going. We, you know, we went into this without knowing what we ended up knowing. As it turned out, you know, Maskell was sent there because they thought he had a preference for boys mm-hmm. to the all-girl high school. And it wasn't just Maskell. The first three chaplains who were assigned to Archbishop Keogh are all known, now known to be sexual predators who preferred boys. Oh, um, Brian Cox and Stephen Gerard were the oh. next two. So Maskell started there um, in 67. And I think between the three of them, they had a chaplain there into the 1980s. I believe the church knew about all three of them. And mm-hmm. I believe that they were switched to the all girls school mm-hmm. because the church thought they were removing them from temptation. Just like I was going by the psychology you talk about it first, mm-hmm. because I also thought, Either you liked men or you liked women or you were bi. And it, it, like you say, it's not that he got his, Maskell got his thrills out of the power and control, mm-hmm. not the sexual satisfaction. Right. That's just like the, the payoff that keeps the addiction going. And I don't mm-hmm. say addiction like treatable addiction. I say predators, serial predators. That's what happens. And they need to keep upping their game. So you mentioned something that one of the girls went up to a teacher and said she was being sexually abused by the priest. Is this the first time you really, the school heard about it? So walk me through that a second. It's it's difficult to nail these things down much as we'd like to, because mm-hmm. we have no documentation. We have no access to documentation. We only have oral history stories from people. We're told that multiple parents and students informed the administration at the school that this was going on. And the reply was 
to tell the girls to stay away from him. Right. It's like if your father's sexually abusing you, stay away from him. It puts the blame on the victim. Right. How do you stay away from a counselor and a priest at a school you go to every day? I laughed a little bit when you talked about that that concept of, of women being dangerous. One of the girls' mothers went to the school and they must have told Masco to leave her alone because Masco preached to her later and said that her her mother was a dangerous woman. Uh, and, and one of our themes has been. Let's be all- dangerous women. Yeah. <laughs> Let's form a group called the dangerous women. But the more, more I looked at it, the problem was I went into it naively. This has all been a learning curve, thinking that, mm-hmm. that you have a couple of perverts and they're in every profession, they're in families, they're everywhere. Mm-hmm. But what quickly became obvious as we looked at the patterns and talked to the people is that there were rings of these predators living together, oh. preying on students. Um, it was not, you know, just Maskell. Maskell was one of the first chaplains for the Baltimore County Police Department. Initially, they had six chaplains. And three of them are now known to be sexual predators. So wait a second. Let me slow you down because this is mm-hmm. new information for me. I heard you speak about rings. But when you start talking about sex rings, and, I mean, this and one of the things that stuns me in the keepers and your story is that some of these rings involved allegedly police officers, medical doctors. Tell me a little bit more about them forming rings. What does that mean? It's so it's so twisted. And I'm not an extremist. I sort of am very slow to, to jump to conclusions. It mm. it looks to us as if there were rings. We, we don't know whether it was related to the, the underground mob in Baltimore. Mm. Um, but it, it looked to us that some of the Keo girls, for example, were have told me that they were expected to attend weekend parties where older businessmen were there. Wow. Uh, and the businessmen would pick their dates for the evening from the young girls who oh. were there. And if they did not show up, Maskell called them into his office and penalized them for not showing up. And how um, would he penalize them? Tell me about how he called girls into his office. Like, how did he and how did Sister Kathy get involved? So, I mean, you know, the hair and the hair on my head is standing straight up. So I look like I put my finger in a socket. <laughs> <laughs> so keep going. This very mild, lovely woman is just, you know, making my hair stand on fire. So keep going. Yeah, it's all this, it gets more and more, you know, they did over 700 hours of filming for the keepers and they mm. could only show about 1% of it. Wow. Um, they probably had 20 other abuse survivors they talked to who were willing to go on film with Maskell and other people and from other settings with Maskell. But ultimately, I think the producers decided it was too confusing with mm. all these different names of people. So they focused back on the Keogh story. Um, Maskell's modus of operation was primarily the confessional. He would, he would, he, and it didn't matter what your answers to his questions were. This was some of the first things we heard from in our little group. If you went to confession, he would ask the girls if they were sexually active at all. And if they said no, he told them that he needed to make, they needed to make an appointment to talk to him in his office. They would go to his office and he would tell them that They were frigid because their fathers hadn't loved them enough, hadn't shown them how you love someone. And that as Father Maskell, he was going to stand in for their father. 
and show them how fathers should love their children. Oh, no. Um, so how old they, were these girls? How old would uh, you say they were? They were high school age. What's that? 14? Like 14, 15. 15. Oh, no. And Catholic uh, girls, you know, yeah, taught well, that, to be very proper. People now have trouble putting themselves back 50 years. Some yeah. of many of these victims were from the most devout families and were the most devout because they were raised to believe that a priest was God on earth. Mm-hmm. And their parents had told them this, you do what the priest tells you. You don't, you know, yeah. um, they also were, we were, we all were very naive about sex and they did not know what he was doing to them. They mm-hmm. thought it was a secret sacrament, mm-hmm. you know, that was going to help them. On the other hand, if he asked the girl if they were sexually active, and even if they were French kissing, that was yes. And he told her they had to come to his office. And so you had to go to his them, office no matter what you answer. Exactly, exactly. Right. So he would tell them that um, they were sinned and stained from this sexual exposure, that he was going to purify them with his special rod, um, oh, no. went through, he went through these. I don't like to get too graphic. They you can get graphic. It's OK, because people don't um, understand how these priests do it. And they don't think the victims are girls. Uh, you know, he call would, me and say, I'm, I'm the only girl victim of this priest or I never heard no, of priests molesting no, no, girls. No, no, it's not no. true. So go no, ahead. So was his rod actually he, he his rod? Use, yes, it's rod. Oh, he, he, he would take them to the altar in the chapel, lay them, you know, on the altar without clothes on and. I'm not going to get too graphic, but because I feel like I'm betraying their stories. But he would use holy water and crosses to purify them. Um, so it, it confession. And then he uses rod, right? This podcast is supported by Focus for Health Foundation. Together, we are in the fight to protect children from abuse. Learn more on our social media platforms with our handle at Focus for Health, or by logging onto our website at focusforhealth.org. So it, it confession. And then he uses rod, right? At, at times, yes. Yes. Okay, got it. Sometimes mm-hmm. he liked to watch them. That's what it comes to that power and control issue. Mm-hmm. I, I think his primary interest was in adolescent boys, but he would. We we came to call him an equal opportunity abuser. He, mm-hmm. Wherever he could find someone, um, his his main approach was through the confessional. But there were also situations where girls were having trouble at home or getting rebellious or getting into trouble, smoking pot or whatever. And the family would tell them, would contact the school and say they wanted them counseled with father. Um, That led down the same path, you know, where where father was going to. to, It was an odd thing because if if the girl stood up with him, one told us that in confession, he asked her about her sex life. And she said, how's yours? Really? He never bothered her again. That um, is so interesting that if you show the slightest. Yeah, he never pushed oh, back. Wow. He to, to take his, his risk with going further. Wow, um, because she looked dangerous like she might have a big mouth. It, it, it's, or, it's, or it's hard to trouble. know the, psycho- the psychology sort of fascinates me because it's so twisted. I, I keep thinking if I can understand how these people's minds work, I can figure out how you stop them, but it, it's really twisted. Um, we went on and it, we, they, we had to put, as word got around the community that people were coming forward to us as clergy sexual survivors in Baltimore, um, 
we got tearful requests from people from other parishes and schools begging to join our page. The same, I never told this to anybody before. Can I join your page? Because I need to talk to somebody who's been through the same thing I had. But we felt we couldn't, we couldn't because we needed our survivors to feel like if they needed to vent, you know, swear, whatever, they were in a safe place within our group. Uh, So the same, uh, techie other Keo students opened a public page called Justice for Catherine Sesnick and Joyce Malecki, who's another young woman who was murdered. Um, and after that page opened, we began getting personal messages from people in other settings who had been abused by other priests, sometimes with Father Maskell and other priests present. Um, you know, they were in Boy Scout troops, they were in Girl Scout troops. Oh. At, 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 there are so many frightening stories, but I, I don't want to, you know, violate people's confidence. Um, at Keogh, at times, there were police officers who came in and were encouraged and allowed to assault the girls. Maskell was chairman, of, uh, a chaplain of the state police, the Baltimore County Police, the National Guard, the Civil Air Patrol. He was protected on, and his brother was a city policeman, although he's not known to have been involved with any of this, uh, Tommy Maskell. He was protected on multiple fronts. Um, and as police chaplain, it's likely that he may have heard confessions, which may have of given course. him an opportunity to blackmail of police Of course, because people would confess um, to things they were ashamed of and he could yeah. leak it. Or, so, so circle back for me. So we've got this monster, really. I mean, we're talking about a huge operation here. What, how did it get? to Sister Kathy. In other words, so we've got this priest that's really, a, a, I almost want to say sex trafficking, but I don't want to minimize yeah, yeah. what people went through. I mean, this is child sexual abuse at its absolute worst and all of it's its absolute worst. So there's not one story worse than the other. It's all humiliating, horrifying, degrading, uh, life changing and life damaging. So I don't want anyone to feel that we don't understand as a survivor myself, you're preaching to the choir. I hate to use that term, actually. But the point is, how did it get to Sister Kathy? And didn't any teachers do anything? What didn't it get to administrators or parents? How do you, I mean, what happened? We had no documentation to prove it, but we had multiple, to me, credible reports from students who say that they are, their parents went to the administration at Keogh really? um, mm-hmm. and nothing changed, but you have to remember the power structure, the church owned the school, not the nuns. Right. Um, so uh, we know at least two students, Kathy found one student distressed. Um, and this is, is part of the keeper's story. And after some gentle questioning, the girl told her that she didn't like being at school because the priests were hurting her. Um, And another one of my classmates also told her that, that father Maskell, I think the phrase she uses was, was getting physical with her in his office. Um, Kathy, and we tried, you know, you try to guess what might've happened. My, Best guess is that Kathy did go, Sister Kathy did go to the school administrators. Mm-hmm. And I, my gut says she was told this was a church priest matter, not a nun matter. And she mm-hmm. needed to be quiet and do her job and keep her nose out of it. Um, uh, 
there was a priest who was in charge of the, um, you know, clergy and the school system. I think Kathy probably would have gone to him as the person in charge and reported it. But it, you have to look at this in light of the bigger picture in Baltimore. Card, or, then Archbishop Sheehan was the head of Baltimore. And he was there when Maskell was transferred to Keogh. Mm-hmm. He was there when a terrible abuser that Maskell knew, John Mersbacher at the Catholic Community Middle School, was there. And there's documentation in newspapers to say the Archdiocese of Baltimore knew Mersbacher was an abuser. But they left wow. him in place anyway. I mean, they must have been pretty sure that they weren't going to get any blowback to be this bold and this open. But this and I mean, I know what you're talking about, because we had the same situation in Los Angeles with Roger Mahoney, Cardinal right. Mahoney. It's you know, I, I sat across. I mean, this was years ago. I sat across the desk from him because I was hearing stories similar to yours. And I said, if you don't do something about this, the church is going to have to start melting the gold off the angels in Rome or you're going to lose insurance and everything else. He refused to turn over documentation to the Los Angeles Police Department and never had to do it. And then was sent back to Rome and promoted. That's, that's so, you know, so these molesting or knowledgeable, powerful people fail up. In other words, if this was a woman, you know, careers would have been over. She would have been strung up and hung and whatever. But the men that were involved in this ended up being rewarded or protected by the Catholic Church in Rome, you know, and, you and, or see. transferred to South America, Central America. So we have cases where victims are hooking up with other victims because they're describing the same unique form of sexual abuse. And they've been able to identify the perpetrator was the same. So it's a priest from the States moved to an African village, you know, uh, Central America. Um, It's devastating. So you have this school, you have a, a nun who believes survivors. And how does Jean come into this? Tell me about Jean's story. Um, Jean was a, a, a student at Keogh. I think she's maybe two years behind me. She was okay. from a large Catholic family. Um, she had been abused as a child by a, an uncle. Mm-hmm. And she went to mass school for confession because she felt like she was guilty Mm -hmm. because of this abuse and of course well actually she went to excuse me she went to the other priest first uh, Neil Magnus and he had her step outside the confessional and he said what is your name and can I see your face is that appropriate Abby I mean I'm not a Catholic and I don't I have never been to confession (laughs) I've married Catholics you know Italian Catholics which I'm crazy about but do you take a uh, no, confessing be because you don't you break confidentiality. In other words, right. if he takes her outside of the confessional, he loses and she loses confidentiality. Um, and he then called her to he, he said that what she had done was so bad that he didn't know if oh. God could forgive her oh. and he would have to think about it. So at some point in time later, he called her to his office where he began his magical sacramental forgiveness rights on her. But then at some point Maskell came in and they were both involved. 
Um, she was, was one of the people we know who told Sister Kathy, but only when Sister Kathy pushed her to see why she seemed so un- unhappy at Kia, what she didn't like about it. Um, the, 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 the bigger picture becomes clear that the Vatican puts out these internal rules and they, I have copies of them. They say that priests accused of sins from confessionals, solicitation, um, have to go before tribunals within the church. And the tribunal decides whether or not they're, they're guilty or not. But right, no one involved so- with the tribunals, no one who knows of this is ever allowed to speak of it. And they actually have to sign agreements. A confidentiality. On the Bible. That they will never speak of it. Like a non-disclosure agreement. But see, and uh, not to interrupt you, but there is a senator in Arizona, Victoria Steele. She's been on this show and she tried to introduce into law in Arizona yesterday to eliminate uh, the confidentiality that 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 now (laughs) priests have to report childhood sexual abuse and the church has to report it. And it was not voted in favor. How is that possible? It was four to four and the legislation didn't pass. Why should a Catholic school have a less uh, of a tier responsibility than a public school? That if you uh, if a counselor, a nurse, uh, a teacher is told about child sexual abuse or a child being abused, whether it's at home or at school, they have a duty to report. It's mandated. Arizonians refuse to mandate clergy reporting of sexual abuse. I, I don't get it. About, I think that's the law in about 46 states. Oh, Maryland, now, now my hair is on fire twice. The, I mean, the Maryland legislature wrote in a specific exclusion in the oh. mandatory reporting laws that says if clergy within a religion that keep confessional information secret only, they don't use the term confession. They say information exchanged uh, with the promise of confidentiality, something like that. With a that. promise. I mean, we have a promise of confidentiality. With expectation, that's the phrase, information exchanged with the clergy with an expectation of privacy if that religion does not make confessional information public is excluded from mandatory reporting. Which they wrote is a, a, a free pass to have child sexual abuse in Catholic schools, clergy, there's no mandated reporting. So if a priest, a good priest, finds out that a sexual abusing priest is abusing or a student comes to the priest and says they -hmm. don't have a duty to report, that's insane. I mean, it's so... If a student comes to them and they're an educator, they do have a duty to report as long as it's not confidential information. There's this much bigger global picture. The Vatican has internal orders all over the world Mm -hmm. to their bishops, archbishops, dioceses about this secrecy. They used to call it the papal secret. And I think there's another uh, term they use for that. Mm -hmm. There's another term they use for it. Um, But it's a much bigger, I think of it as a clear conspiracy to protect their finances and their, uh, reputation from scandal while they're throwing the kids to the wolves. In Baltimore, you had the, the, the archbishop who moved Maskell, moved multiple other ones, left John Mersbacher in place knowing he was an abuser. He also accepted two known abusers from other states, uh, Father Walter Imala from Memphis and Father Lawrence Brett from Bridgeport. 
They were known abusers, uh, and he and and he, the accepting diocese has to be notified of the priest's history. Um, he accepted them and put them into parish in Baltimore, where they went on to abuse Baltimore kids. Oh. So mass school people who say they never would have moved an abuser don't understand the whole picture. Mass school is one little pin in this much bigger picture. His father, I mentioned, who was his brother. I'm sorry, his friend, Father. Uh, Sims, who was with him in a seminary abusing boys at that day camp, um, was caught abusing adolescent boys at a school in, in Anne Arundel County, caught red-handed, and the assistant state's attorney declined to file criminal charges in return for a schedule of children. Um, that kept me up for a couple of nights. And Sims was hidden in rectories in Baltimore for decades. No one knew. No one was told. No families. The Church said no children were ever allowed in the rectory. Yeah, yeah um, is right. And Sims was given a job in that tribunal. So, uh, and, and here you've got it. And then we're going to move on, which is you allow this to go on in the worldwide system of the Catholic Church and the parishes and the schools, and then you take care of the law on the back end by cutting off statutes and limitations. So you don't get you don't pay it forward, you don't pay it backward. You just have it going in all realms. And then if you get caught completely red-handed, then you throw a couple pennies or thousand dollars at survivors and make them sign non-disclosure agreements and settlements. It's outrageous. But I do want to get back to Jean's story because I still don't understand the connection between this ring of sexual abusers and Sister Kathy. I don't get what happened. I think we don't know know there's any direct relationship between Sister and Kathy and this larger ring. We, We think, my best guess is that if I'm trying to give a little more context for those who haven't seen the film. Yes. I, I think Sister Kathy went to the administration and tried to fix it and couldn't. And she and another nun decided to leave the convent. They were mm-hmm. still nuns, but they wanted to do a social experiment where they moved to an apartment and taught in public schools to see what the issues were with kids in public schools. I, I sort of think that's a cover story because I think maybe the convent and the church didn't want her there. She wasn't going to be quiet, but mm-hmm. be that as it may, um, uh, she had moved out and they were, were teaching. And I think she thought that because she had reported it, perhaps it had gotten better. But Jean went to her in the fall and said, and other students did and said, it's actually gotten worse. Mm-hmm. And I think that Kathy was going to go public and talk about it. Uh, Father Maskell and Father Magnus from Keogh came to Kathy's apartment the night before she was abducted, angry. Um, there was a Keogh student there talking to them who has never wanted to be publicly known because her family don't know that she was an abuse survivor. And she doesn't want them to know. She's almost 70. You mm-hmm. respect people's decisions. Um, she left, so we don't know what the conversation was that night, but Maskell, that was a Friday, Maskell called the student who was at the apartment to his office on Monday and said that if she ever told anybody that he was at the department, that she'd be killed, her family would be killed. And she was scared to death, so she did not say anything. She did not come forward till around 1992, 1993, and she did go to the police after Jean said that Maskell had taken her to see Sister Kathy's body. Sister Kathy was abducted from her apartment the next night, we think from the parking lot. Um, No one knew what happened. She was just gone. Her car was left across the street. And two months later, her body was found. Um, 
it's never been solved. There were always rumors that it had been covered up, that police were involved as we had one sort of informant we came to call Deep Throat, who was a retired policeman to, to and that and that was not in the sexual content. That was from my, No, no, uh, but we mean like in the Watergate. Exactly. I didn't even think yes. of that. That was the Watergate hearings. And after the documentary yes. came out, all these people came up angry. How dare you? And I was like, I didn't even think of the movie. I just was thinking of Watergate. Um, of course. But he, you know, he said, Deep Throat said, you know, if a if a policeman killed her, he would have known how to do it without leaving anything. Mm. If the other officers knew it was him, they would never turn him in. They were never going to arrest another cop. Mm. So it was sort of the perfect way that if Maskell went through one of his police friends. Mm. But we don't really know what happened. We, we had multiple men of interest. We had at times we hoped maybe we had solved it. But at the end of the day, we can't rule out that she didn't cross paths with some psycho at the shopping center where she was cashing a check. You know, and the psycho went and confessed to Maskell, maybe, so he knew where the body was. There's, how have, would have, Maskell know where the body was? I mean, right. honestly, he, he took Gene to see the body. How would he ever know where the body was without knowing something? That would be there, impossible because there are, people yeah. still are missing bodies of loved ones that they have never been found. How, what do you suspect? I'm not saying you have the proof, but what is the suspicion how Maskell knew to take Gene where the body was if he had nothing to do with it? You know, it, it's purely speculative, and I have multiple theories I like. One week I like one better than another. Give me a couple um, of them, because I'm I'm not sure well, about this one. It's so close to the sexual abuse being reported to this particular nun. Yeah. There was yeah, a that's lot of what, motive. That's what, and and uh, no one theory matches everything. Yes. One rational sort of theory for me is that the neighbor, Billy Schmidt, whose family came to us because they thought that he had killed Kathy and they wanted to help us, Mm -hmm. um, was had some psych problems, lived next door, was having religious ideations, maybe was hearing voices, um, knew she was the nun. He could have abducted her in the parking lot that night when she was coming home from shopping. And the, 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 Hard thing is that he's the only one that we really know knew that piece of land where she was found. Does his DNA match any DNA found no. at the murder site? The only we we don't know for sure all the DNA they might have. In '69, they weren't using DNA much. It's yes. a catch twenty-two. They can't talk to us about anything we don't already know about. But if we know about something, they can talk to us about. What about Ancestry Twenty Three and Me? That's how they just caught the Golden State Killer. Yeah. was from DNA forty years ago. We might find a relative, life. you know, I mean, yeah. you know, we don't do know they what have DNA? They DNA? Have. You don't, don't know, know what DNA they have. We don't know. That's part of the investigation that they weren't, re- that they won't reveal. They didn't use DNA much back in 69. No, but we do know that. they, yeah. we did Go find they, that there was a cigarette found around her clothing um, and that they had collected evidence for that. They had collected evidence from Billy Schmidt's brother in the 90s to see if the Schmidt family were a match mm-hmm. and they weren't. Mm-hmm. Um, after the documentary came out, they dug up Maskell's body. Oh. Um, so around the time it came out, they dug up Maskell's body to collect DNA, and it was not a match. Um, you know, no, none of our men of interest DNA matched the cigarette, basically. Her family does not want Kathy's body disturbed. And, of course, mm-hmm. we don't have that ability anyway, but we've respected that. We have no wish to cause them more pain. 
uh, you know, through our looking at that. I do have some hope. Uh, we're told that the DNA, you know, the cigarette butt was laying out outdoors for two months, rain and snow, and supposedly even the brand name lettering was worn off it. Um, we're, we're told that, that what DNA there was was largely used up with early, less sophisticated testing, mm. and that the rest is, is fractured or hard to use for anything. But I still have some hope that with forensic DNA, you know, getting better and better, that they may be able to reconstruct a, a full DNA link and use that in those familial databases. At Absolutely. Least that would help us rule in or out people. We even had some professional genealogists working with us who would help do elaborate family trees for us. All that, that, that's my takeaway from this. It, it is a, a tragic, ugly, hard story. Um, but all these people came together, hundreds of people from our school and from Baltimore and two different families came forward to say, we think our relative killed her and can we help you? Wow. Uh, That's amazing. Was, and even the documentary people coming forward was something of a stroke of luck. It, it just felt like there was something out there that wanted this story told mm-hmm. um, and wanted it told now for 50 mm-hmm. years later for some reason. Uh, I would love to know what happened to Kathy. We we know there was abuse. I believe that the Archdiocese of Baltimore knew it and covered it up. Um, so what do you But think? I don't really know who killed Kathy. Yeah. Right. And I think that, I guess my only question is it could have been just synchronicity that all this abuse is coming out, all this abuse is going on. One of the victims is threatened, shown the body, shown where the body is by Mm. Father Maskell. How did he know where the body is? Yes, he had connections to the police department. Was he involved? And we have the murder of the one of the few women who knew and was going to do something about it. Did this make your victims afraid of being hurt? Initially, they were they, the, the psychology of this was painful for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yes, initially, and some of them still do, they believe that the other police officers and, and people involved in this may still be alive and out there and that they might target and harm them or harm their families right. uh, to, to silence them. Right. Um, we actually had to prove that Maskell was dead because people thought maybe he been in a witness protection program, was living somewhere else and was or transferred and after him. Oh you know? God. And uh, so it, let me you know it's little moments that come out with this that grab my heart, not the big mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. We were trying to and, and the majority of women who came forward to talk to us didn't come because they wanted to tell it. They wanted to help the other people who were in pain and in the group to reassure them, you know, we were struggling with this issue of people who said, I can't talk about this because Maskell's going to hurt me. I know that he didn't really die. They're lying about it. He's out there under an assumed identity. And that's when people began to come forward, like Lil Hughes Nips, who visited him in the nursing home because she wanted to see that he was indeed, you know, had a stroke and was ill. But another one saw that they, and the church didn't put out any big obituary for him. There was just little notices in the church bulletins. Um, And one of our victims, our survivors, um, saw the notice and went to the funeral home in the notice and dressed nicely. And she went because she said, I wanted to spit on him in his coffin. Right. And this was a woman who had not come forward. Nobody knew 
anything about her story. And, and why was there never a public charge against him for sexual abuse? I mean, those facts we know, we have survivors, they told their story, there were witnesses, Gene was abused by both. We have Teresa Lancaster who came out. I mean, we have very public survivors. We have scores of people. Scores. Why was he never charged? Never even I charged. I believe that both church and state conspired to protect mm-hmm. the clergy abusers. Uh, oh. We went to Jean and, and, and Teresa, another survivor who came forward, filed Doe Roe versus Maskell civil suits in Baltimore in 1994, mm-hmm. around that era. And um, when, the, the, when, they, when Jean went to the church first, the church and attorney said, we can't find anybody. Now, they knew about Charles already. We can't find anybody who has any complaints against Father Maskell. So we can't do anything to corroborate your story unless we have other people coming forward. And, and here's what um, drives me crazy, Abby, not to interrupt you. Mm-hmm. Why isn't one victim's truth enough? In other words, why does there have to be five of us or six of us, women, children? It's like uh, if one of us comes forward, we're not believed. We need a a, a, a Posse of victims. It's very maddening to me that we throw away individual children because maybe a predator only does pick one child. Maybe a priest has a particular obsession with one kid. Why does it have to be, you know, a, a, a squad? Why well, isn't one of us enough? Jean was from this big Catholic family, and one of her sisters and brother went to the alumni house of the SSMD order and said they were going to do a PO reunion in the 1990s and asked if they had like some sort of an alumni directory. And oh, the sister smart. said, the nun said, well, uh, you know, I'll have to pay five dollars. And they were like, <laughs> here's your five dollars. Uh, and Jean's family got together on, you know, in the backyard on picnic tables, and they wrote, I would imagine, hundreds of index cards to P.O. alumni using that book. After the church had said, we can't find anybody. Right. Um, And they also put a little ad in the paper. If you were a student at Archbishop P.O. High School and were aware of improprieties, please get in touch with us. Well, her lawyer began getting contacts from scores of people. And she she would say to them, who are you calling about? And over and over again, it was Father Maskell, Father Maskell, Father Maskell. That's how Teresa found out about the the civil Is that right? Because each person thought they were the only one. Yes, very much so. And Um, they had to keep the secret. That's how everybody always is. That's right. You think... That's right. You think you're the only one and you keep the secret and they tell you it's our little secret. I'll kill your brother. I'll sexually abuse your sister. Your father will be ashamed of you. I'll tell your family. So we all think we're the only ones. Yeah. And that's, that's always a truism. Yeah. The, 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 you know, so when the the lawyers were contacted, they told the other Keo survivors that they needed to file a police report. And our deep throat was working at the police station. He says over 100 people came in to file police reports. Um, in the newspapers and stories, I can say at least scores did. And we know a few dozen were willing to testify in court against him. Uh, these police reports were forwarded, were forwarded to Sharon May, who was Baltimore City Assistant State's Attorney. And she declined to file criminal charges against Maskell. Why? She said it was because of the difficulty of introducing information from someone else's story into a single trial, that basically it would be a he said, she said sort of case 
and that they had no evidence. There was no forensic evidence. So like baseball fields of he said and she said, right? I mean, we're not talking about one person. And what she's basically saying is we can't introduce prior acts of misconduct to prove that the person acted in this manner in this way. But you can get around that by showing they use the same motive. They use the same words. They had the same intent. They had opportunity. There are a million ways to get around it when you've got patterns. Why do you think she really didn't do it? I mean, I'm horrified. Why did she not? Deep Throat told us before that uh, she was known that, you know, it was just policy. They weren't going to bring criminal charges against a priest. And we found a story about another abuser, uh, Maurice Blackwell, mm-hmm. who was sexually abusing older boys. Um, and one of the boys in, in therapy had come forward and told about it. And the church and the state had hushed that up as well. The, the Maurice Blackwell case, the young man who he'd harmed, got more angry and more angry during the years and waited out years later, waited out in front of a church and shot the priest when he was coming out. And then they charged the kid who shot him with murder. Blackwell had never been charged. Exactly. So if the victim takes any action at all, I don't mean murdering your perpetrator, but anything you're going to end up in jail, but the bad guys don't. So I don't get what was the community doing? In other words, we have a legal system, a police department, a church, a state and a government all enabling or part of this. Why doesn't anyone want to do anything about this? We, we're, a country, we're a country that cares about kids, allegedly. Nobody cares more about kids than, quote, the Catholic Church. Nobody wants you to have more kids than the Catholic Church. Nobody wants to stop you from not having children more than the Catholic Church. But once you're born... They don't give a damn about you. They're throwing these children to the wolves. Why aren't they doing anything? I don't understand. Well, you saw a spotlight, I'm sure. It's I exact, did. I it's see the exact all of them. same pattern over it all across the But country. I don't get the mentality. Is it denial, well, Abby? Is it that I we don't want to look at it? We're certainly happy to look at uh, 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 serial killers that rape and mutilate women. We've seen hundreds of thousands of stories of those. Every day it's true crime. What is it about this structure of the church, the police, the community, and the state in particularly Catholic-run uh, states and cities like Baltimore and Maryland and Los Angeles, by the way, and <laughs> Los Angeles. All across the country. You bet. And Boston. What is it? We've been telling our stories. Survivors have been telling their stories. Netflix did a seven-part docuseries. We're telling and telling and telling and telling, and nothing is being done. Why? Tell me about their point of view. I don't get it. I think the church holds great power over Mm. people and people are frightened of them. They were were trained to obey them. Mm. The church will protect itself from scandal at any cost. You know, I've learned to see if I rarely go and sit in the church now for a funeral, I look around at those beautiful stained glass windows and all. And all I can see is the rot and corruption behind Mm -hmm. them. I start twitching. It's a it's an ugly, complicated thing. We've been working in Maryland for decades to pass statutes of limitation Mm -hmm. reform. Uh, Statutes of limitations are arbitrary laws that differ from state to state. And I'd never heard of them that put an age limit on your ability to use the court. Some do both criminal and civil. It it, it varies. In Maryland, when we got out of uh, 
high school 50 years ago, the age cut off to file a civil suit for sexual abuse was 21. Maskell was still at his height. Our people weren't going to do that. Years later, Jean and Teresa filed a suit, this Doe Roe v. Maskell case, and that was thrown out because it was past the statute of limitation. The only concrete thing I can see to wrench some good legacy out of the pain of telling the keepers is to force legal changes that protect children from predators. So, you know, Abby, you're speaking music to my ears because Roar as one is working on eliminating the civil and criminal statutes of limitations with the United States Congress nationwide, because in California, there was no statute of limitations for murder, kidnapping, torture, arson and embezzlement. There was for rape and there was for child sexual abuse. So we value people embezzling money more than we value sexual assault against children. Literally, there's no statute of limitations in California for embezzlement. Mm -hmm. So I worked on changing the statute in the 90s when you guys were working on this. I got it changed with my law partner to uh, age uh, 26. And if you're older than 26, three years from the time you discover you've been psychologically damaged. It was imperfect at the time, but a lot of states adopted it. Now, I even don't like my own law and think just like you think there should be no statute of limitations for childhood sexual abuse. Who are we protecting? If you have a case, if you can prove it, I don't care if you're 30 or 50 or 70. If you have a case, you should be able to have your day in court. So it drives me crazy when I keep seeing this Maryland bill that you're working on. (laughs) Keep, you know, tell me a little bit about that. I mean, our listeners may not know that, but tell me what you're working on in Maryland, which I love you so much for doing. It's so fantastic. I can throw a word in, um, The psychology of sexual abuse in childrenhood is different from other crimes. Mm -hmm. Uh, A German study in 2014 showed that of people who are sexually abused in childhood, one third of them will never speak of it during their lifetime. About one third of it do speak of it around the time of injury, but are often told, don't talk about that. We don't believe you. The last third are adults who do talk about it, but the average age of disclosure for an adult who was injured by sexual abuse as a child was 52. 52. That's right. 52. 52. It takes courage and time and confidence to make peace and be able to talk about it. By the time they can, they're not allowed to talk about it. Exactly. They like- won't charge you. You can't file civil suits. What happens to the predators? Even if they're removed from the priesthood, they're living in communities. They pass background checks. They can volunteer in schools, coaches, therapists. They're out there and they're harming children still. They don't just stop. And here's the thing. So in California, in 2016, a friend of mine and a senator passed legislation I consulted on that eliminated the criminal statute of limitations for continuous child sexual abuse, rape, campus sexual assault. It's a little complicated because you have to have been within your 10 years to do it now. But still, they're fighting the civil. So California extended it to age 40. It's not old enough. It's just what you said. It shocked me, Abby, that the studies are showing by the time you can process it, cope with it, understand how it affected your life, understand your damages, you're in your 50s. 
And, and many people don't want to talk about it until their parents die. They're embarrassed. Or until their, their predator die. dies. Yeah. So the yeah, question- that's another that's another biggie. The um, in Maryland, there is no statute of limitations on felony child abuse. If the so the criminal statutes are gone, right? Yeah. Well, the criminal one is that as I and I'm not an attorney, so no, I no, mean, no. Along the way, but there, there, there was there never had been a statute of limitation on felony sexual child abuse. So Maskell could have been charged in 94. Without a doubt. And why can't some of his collaborators be charged if they're still alive? Most I of them are dead. One died, one died about two months ago. The ones we know of are dead. And why don't they charge a conspiracy of the ones that are still living as enablers and well, conspirators? That's, that's a good question. Two and a half years ago, the Maryland Attorney General's Office began a criminal investigation mm-hmm. of clergy abuse in Maryland. Mm-hmm. We gave them all the information. We had emails. Our people went. We asked people to go and talk to them. Um, they still, I was told this week, that it is a, quote, very active investigation, but they do not comment on investigation. So we have no idea what's going on behind the scenes. And some of this drives me, you know, makes me very upset because all you have to say to keep activists and people that are curious and push it quiet is saying what's an ongoing investigation. Well, you can have an ongoing investigation until we're all 10 feet under. Well, right? just, it's a great way to shut us up. Yeah, they feel it's, it looks like they're doing something, but you know, an ongoing, how long does an ongoing think, investigation take 40 years, 30 uh, years? You've got still living survivors who could testify to what happened well, to them. Their, their problems, I think, is that you, to bring an indictment against an individual, you need a, a living perp and you need a living survivor. And right. our age cases, many of them no longer have intact peers, but our, our, um, civil statute limitation where someone wants to bring a private lawsuit so yes. to speak when we got out of high school the age cut off in maryland was 21 mm-hmm. in 2007 it was raised to 25 big wow years. big deal that's fantastic they gave us four years there were multiple bills that always failed stuck in the judiciary Senate judiciary mostly and 2017, in the session in the spring, as the legislative session was coming to an end, they knew the Keepers was coming in May. Mm-hmm. And the legislature sat down and bargained with the Catholic Church to arrive at a bill that could be passed. And that pisses me off again. Why, Why bargain with a defendant? Church? They need permission from the church. I mean, anyway, what is that? Is the church donating money to the state, to the politicians? Yes. I mean, do you say to a perpetrator, we're going to pass this law if it's okay with you? When do you bargain with the the criminal defendant? The Catholic Church is the criminal defendant. This gets gets twisted. C.T. Keepers, and he's one of our heroes. His situation was not clergy abuse, was adoptive family. Mm -hmm. Um, it, but in 2017, they, they passed this bill with the, with the church suddenly coming out a month before the keepers release saying, we support this fully that raised the age to 38. And we thought, well, that's a little bit of an improvement. It's bad. What we, what we did not know was that the head of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Senator Bobby Zirkin, mm-hmm. had agreed with Catholic lobbyists who wanted a phrase slipped into the bill. All right. Bobby Zirkin slipped a phrase called the statute of repose into the bill, 
He did not notify the bill sponsor, C.T. Wilson. There was no required discussion of it in committee. But once and, and people, to tell you the truth, I don't think noticed it a whole lot. You know, statute of limitations, statute of repose. Um, once the bill was passed, that then became a law. And I, I uh, had to write this down a little bit. It's a big difference. Um, they say many courts have ruled that statute of limitation is procedural or remedial in nature and operates only to limit the remedy for, but not the substantial right to assert a cause of action. A statute of repose, however, is considered substantive and defines the right involved in terms of time allowed to bring suit. A statute of repose completely extinguishes the right, not just the remedy, to file a suit. Oh, my and God. In our, case, in our case, the church, their lobbyists and their lawyers oh. knew about the statute of repose. Other legislators did not. C.T. Wilson did not. And we did not. Mm. We did not know about it. That was 2017. Oh. I didn't get into this until 2018 when I began to feel like, what good is telling the keeper story if there's just all this pain and nothing changes? Exactly. Um, it's like you can tell the story and you don't want to be sort of a propagator of trauma porn, so to speak. Mm-hmm. What yeah. you want to do is use the story to get justice. That's what all survivors want. We're telling our stories to get justice, to make something, we're, we're passing on to the next generation, Abby, the same stuff we went through. These are kids that are going to be abused that we already know, and we haven't done enough. That's why I'm working night and day for this. But the statute of repose is crazy town. It's a construction-based term that gives oh my manufacturers goodness. 20 years after production for people to sue for a defect. However, once that was passed, it is Maryland law. So in 2019, we came back with a new bill. C.T. Wilson, Delegate C.T. Wilson introduced it that would abolish statutes of limitations going forward in Maryland, which only helps people who have not already hit the age cutoff. Right. You have to be 38 or younger. Do you have Um, a window? Like, is there a three-year window? Well, that's part of our bill. To catch the survivors that didn't, uh, you know, there were always survivors that fall within that period that aren't. You know what I mean? That we're, their statute right. is out. So mm-hmm. you know, we try to do window legislation. I think it should be eliminated backwards and forwards, by the way. Yeah. Oh, I, I agree. Our, our bill, which is basically the same now, our bill that was introduced in 2019 had a two-year look-back window. Okay. It abolished statutes of limitations going forward, but that would mean anybody younger than that who was born later, too, they would never have them. Um, and. Yes. It also had to remove that state, that, that phrase repose. statute of repose, because if we don't get rid of that, we can't do anything. So we had this bill moving forward in 2019 when a, a former attorney for the Archdiocese of Baltimore sent a letter to one of the delegates who said it's a long, complicated legal letter. Basically, it says statute of repose says you can't do any of this. It's unconstitutional. It's illegal. You voted for it. It's the law. So we were like, what is this? We didn't know where the phrase had come from, how it was put in. Washington Post wrote an article in in 2019 about it, saying that it was Senator Zirkin who we thought supported us. He stood up in front of us at the 29, uh, I'm sorry, 2019 judiciary hearing and said, we'll fix this. We have to fix this. Uh, but he was the one who put that phrase. So he in. did fix it. He put the fix no. in. He, he put yeah, the exactly. fix in. 
Well, that he is still terrible. Us, he promised he was going to fix it. And we still were thinking, well, maybe he didn't really. And he says he didn't understand the impacts of the phrase. Um, he himself admitted it. Uh, and then in, in just before the 2020 session started, Bobby Zirkin resigned from the Senate saying it was, you know, the political infighting was too bitter for him. Mm-hmm. And after waiting the mandatory year, when we came this year to the Judiciary Senate hearing for testimony on our bill, there was one person opposing us who was representing the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. and it was new lobbyist Bobby Zirkin. Oh, no. So oh, he slipped that no. phrase in to help the church. Then oh, he left. Now no. he's being handsomely paid by the church to oppose You know, us. that is just... That's terrible. Sort of that is That's just the, sort of the kind of thing that makes all of us not believe in the in the political system, not believe in the legal system that it, you have just described what happens to child sexual abuse survivors with statute limitations, environmentalists, gun control people, mm-hmm. you know, anybody that's trying to do something good that just. That's devastating. So I want to say that's devastating because you have a Benedict Arnold among you and he looks like a friend. It was, you know, it was another institutional betrayal. We had the church and we had the state and now we have a senator who we thought was on our side who had betrayed us. I mean, but there's nothing we can do. You were right. Here's I have two questions. One, Mm -hmm. why didn't the state attorney general or the United States attorney bring charges against the Catholic Church for RICO? All this sex trafficking, all this going over interstate borders, all of this money exchanging hands. It's a RICO violation. Well, interesting. That happened in Maryland. It's racketeering. Maryland is a state that has three different has two archdioceses and one diocese covering it. The archdiocese of D.C. covers parts of Maryland, mm-hmm. and they send abusers across state lines to parishes in Maryland, right. as does the Wilmington-Delaware diocese, which sent abusers to the eastern shore. The bishop of that is now uh, Bishop Maluli, who was in the end of the keepers there, oh. helping to cover up the abuse story. I mean, why um, isn't the FBI on this? They're they're sex trafficking, using minors across state lines. They're using the Internet. They're using pictures. Some of the survivors who I spoke to from the capers said photographs were taken of them and they've appeared on the Internet or they're being used by perpetrators and pedophiles. Why is this not RICO, sex trafficking, Title 18? Who the hell is a lawyer in that friggin' state? Standing up for you all. We it's an it's an uphill battle that the yeah. power and control by the Catholic Church. And let me clarify, I was yeah. raised Catholic and I have no problem with people who find that faith brings richness and value to their lives. Nothing within the doctrine of the Catholic Church says it's all right to hurt children. Um, I can't ignore the corruption. You know, when I speak of the Catholic Church, I'm talking about the corruption at the higher levels, Mm -hmm. the lying, the cover ups, the conspiracy to allow children to be harmed, to protect their reputation. Um, I think that's slowly unraveling. But we we're stuck right now. Mm -hmm. We had the best bill we've ever had this year. I saw a wonderful working group. We have PR companies doing videos for us. Um, We have lobbyists. The bill now is in Senate Judiciary. Um, mm. and where good bills go to die a lot of times. This is where it always dies. The I had a lot of bills Smith, die in the judiciary. Yeah. Well, the chairman, Senator Smith, 
refuses to allow it to go for a year. I have had that. It took me eight years in California because the chair of the committee at the time, Willie Brown, refused to have a hearing on it and kept it. I mean, it's just we had our hearing. Yeah, we had our hearing, which was ridiculous because we were allowed. We were told that they didn't want emotional testimony. Oh, that's nice. We sent head of our Maryland SNAP, uh, Mm -hmm. Dave Lorenz, and Mm -hmm. we sent three attorneys. Mm -hmm. who each had were allowed a few minutes and that's it. While uh, Senator Zirkin, he still uses his senator title, was treated as if he were still the head of oh, the committee. Traditions. And they were given over an hour to, to talk. And, they, and, and they, you, know, you know, here's part of my feeling before we bring this to a close. I kind of feel like the people in power support Predators, perpetrators, pedophiles, that they support the objectification and use of women and children, that it's part of a patriarchal system to really women and children are chattel, their property, and you can do with them what you want. We say we love children. The Catholic Church says it. It really loves children. But you show me one thing that shows they've stood up for abused, molested, betrayed children. I mean, it it really is a problem. Now, let me ask you before my final question, has the doings of the Catholic Church made you lose faith in God? Where do you stand, not just with the church, but do you think there's a God? And do you think God is on your side or is allowing this? (laughs) I, you know, with brought up Catholic, I am not at all religious, perhaps on the spiritual side of it. Mm -hmm. I think that there are sort of a, a natural forces around us in the world. I, I do believe in a fate and a destiny. Um, why do bad things happen in the world? That's sort of a, the, the eternal question. Um, I, I, I don't particularly believe in a God pulling strings, but I do believe that we each have an obligation to leave the world a better place than we found it in one place or the other. And that if there is a God, he's got to judge us by what the good that we did in our lives, how we treated other people. Uh, and I can live with that. I can't believe it matters what religion your parents baptized you into. Um, mm-hmm. Amen to that. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly that whether you believe in a higher spirit, a guide, God, a goddess, the Catholic Church, you know, <laughs> Jesus Christ, you're a born again Christian, you're a Muslim or a Buddhist. I believe that we have an obligation to, to leave this world in a better place for the next generation if we know and we can do something about it. And I admire you so much for doing this. I mean, you have just broken silence like the sound barrier. I mean, you've just been like a, a super, you know, supersonic jet of, of light. And so I, I, I always end my, my podcast interview with if you were talking to survivors of priest child sexual abuse and there was one thing you could give them to help them on their healing journey, what would it be? Uh, Of course, you wish you could go back and make it never happen. Mm -hmm. Um, I I try to focus on having people understand that this was not their fault, Mm -hmm. that they did not do anything wrong, that these were twisted predators who cast a wide net and they were going to catch some some kids up in it, whether Mm -hmm. it was that individual or another one, inevitably children were going to be caught up with it, that, that, that they have nothing to be ashamed of or embarrassed about, and that we understand 
why it's so painful and difficult to talk about this sort of thing. Um, you know, if we could, if we can remove that, that veil of shame, mm. people can begin to talk about it and other predators can be unmasked and we can begin to disrupt and tear down the system that allows these predators to go on and on. Um, and so if you could alleviate a victim's pain, if there was one thing you could take away from them, one thing that's hurt them, what would you take away other than it never happened, which we all want to take away? What I think would that, you do? that, that guilt, that sense of shame, shame and guilt. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. It has been such a pleasure to speak with you, Abby. I mean, it's so nice to have someone who, Uh, can talk about the keepers, can talk about it from a personal point of view, but sees the big picture as well. The institutional picture, the legislative picture, the legal picture. It's, it's, it it is a huge picture. We can't look at it from just one level because if we look at it only from one level, then we don't fix the institutional church uh, political solutions that can help. I always feel like people always say to me, I want to give survivors a voice. That's one thing I hear a lot. And I want to say to that, survivors have been speaking their voice, such as myself. We want people to listen. It's not that we're not speaking. You're not listening, world. You know, people don't want to, yeah. People get uncomfortable with the topic. They they don't want to hear about it. They don't want to know about it. But they're Um, willing to watch a movie and hear about the next rape torture, sexual bounding of girls and children. I don't get why they don't want to hear about this, but, but we are here. I just want to say to you, if there is anything I can do to help you in Maryland, I am there for you in any way. I love what you're doing. I think it's, you know, you're you're unrelenting and we need to be unrelenting. And I would love your team, you, your people to at some point, once we get a bill number to help us with a federal elimination of the statute of limitations so that, you know, you were not, we're still going to fight in the States, but we now have this umbrella that the States can give more, but they can't give less. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, we hope because, you know, I can't fight in 50 states. It took me a lifetime fighting in California, taking you a lifetime fighting in Maryland, people a lifetime fighting in New York, New Jersey, Maine, Vermont. Alabama is still two years from when it happens. So if you're four and you don't get a civil attorney by six, game over. Criminally, there's no statute, but nobody ever gets prosecuted. Exactly. Right. And so it's the perfect world for perpetrators, pedophiles and predators. So thank you, Abby. I I love you and I love the work you're doing. Thank you for what you did with the keepers, because that really blasted out this whole system in a way that was just undeniable in its rawness. And please come back and update us. Thank you. It's such a big story. I I feel like it's hard to tell the the whole thing without jumping around. I know. So please come back because we've got chunks of this that we still haven't talked about. I mean, I have like a list of questions we never got to. So we invite you to come back and hope that you do. Oh, sure. If if Senator Smith doesn't have a change of heart and at least allow our senators the right to vote on the bill, we'll probably be back fighting again next year. So we'll have the same topic. (laughs) Oh, gosh. I mean, let's hope. I mean, I don't know. Somewhere in the universe, we have to ask for help on this so that we can give victims the hope 
that they are not alone. They are not forgotten. They will not be denied justice. And we are fighting for them as they are fighting for themselves. Thank you for joining us today, Abby. And, you know, and I just want to, if I can throw one more thing on sure. actually is called the Hidden Predator Hidden, Hidden Predator. Because our wish is not just to, our wish is not just to help survivors have their day in court, but more importantly, to, to use their pain to protect other children. And that's really what's motivating us to leave a good legacy to protect other children from this pain. And I don't understand why it's so hard to get laws passed to protect children. And, you know, I you just said it for me. I am a sister holding your hand in that thought. You know, I am a victim. I didn't get justice. This is not going to help me. But I just cannot believe that I can't do something to help the next four year old, six year old, 10 year old, 13 year old. I just don't feel I can leave this earth, just like you said, without holding my hand out to the next generation and say, not on our watch. We, we, we'd uncovered this and we're gonna, we're gonna do everything we can to make sure it doesn't happen to you. We have an obligation to leave some kind we of. We do. Yeah. Thank you for mm-hmm. saying that because people say to me all the time, this isn't going to help you. This isn't, you know, you can't, your perpetrators are dead, you know, or they're alive and, you know, you can't do anything. And, and it was never about helping me. I think, I think it does. It, it will help you and it will help our survivors to feel like the pain that they've suffered, they've acted out to spare other children from having that pain. That I think that purpose. does make it, Yeah. I think that pain to purpose. That's our goal. That's the whole point of the show is pain to purpose. And you're right. But I mean, it goes beyond that. It isn't just that I want to feel like I'm helping others. I actually want to make it a change. You know, it's not enough to try. We must accomplish. That's how I feel. So thank you. And for being a sister in this fight. And I'm shocked that this keepers led to statute of limitation fights. I mean, you are speaking to my heart. (laughs) You are speaking to my heart. Uh, And it's a breath of fresh air because people don't understand this and why it's so important. I'm just one little player. Like I say, we have this Lovely organizing committee with from, from multiple things, political backgrounds, state agencies, uh, uh, talented people in advertising, child protection groups. Um, it, it's been it's a little bit like the keeper store where you see that ugliness, but then you turn around, and you see these good people working together. Mm-hmm. I'm just a little a little little cog in this big wheel. Somehow I ended up in this spot. I'm not sure why, but I think sometimes you put where you're supposed to be, whether you like it or not. And thank heaven you are put in this spot. And you've given me faith. Maybe there is a God, right? (laughs) I'm not sure I'm ready to go there. You're not sure you're ready to go there. See, and I am that you're so funny and I'm not even a Catholic, but maybe there is a God that spoke to you and brought this to you. And I mean, we all feel like little cogs in a big machine, but you know, we're ready to step forward and anything your group can do to join us. We would welcome the help any minute of free time they have, because if we don't fight nationally, then you're fighting in Maryland and then somebody's fighting in Arizona. And then they're trying to fight in Mississippi. And so they survivors are in the middle of terrible intrigue. Now. Absolutely. And we've got 50 states. It's going to take 50 more years. We're all going to be 3000 years old before <laughs> children. Right. We better start. Not we better start. No, I got 
to get off this. <laughs> we, we better end this call. I've got to, I've got to get marching here. <laughs> Wonderful to have you. Thank you, Abby. We'll talk soon and I want you to come back. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. This podcast is supported by Focus for Health Foundation. Together, we are in the fight to protect children from abuse. Learn more on our social media platforms with our handle at Focus for Health or by logging onto our website at focusforhealth.org. Thank you. Stay safe and know that I love you. Roar with Sherry, All Things Justice for Women and Survivors, is hosted by me, Sherry Carney. It is executive produced by Natasha Nelson, produced by Joe Kalk, sound engineer, the awesome Ronan Rosner, and music by the amazing Sharon Gatow. We'd love to hear from you. Please follow us on our social media at Roar as One and at Sherry Carney and go to our website, RoarAsOne.org. And as you know, all the Roar with Sherry podcasts have episode pages on RoarAsOne.org and we will give you all the guests and all our social media handles on the website, RoarAsOne.org. Roar as One Inc. owns the copyright in and to all content in and transcripts of the Roar with Sherry, All Things Justice for Women and Survivors podcast with all rights reserved, including right of publicity. The nonprofit Roar as One is providing this podcast as a public service, but it is neither a legal interpretation or a statement of policy. Reference to any specific guest, product, or opinion by the host does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by Roar as One, Sherry Carney Legal Education, Inc. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent.